When people are scared, when they are uncomfortable, they tend to try to build walls rather than bridges. Did you know that hundreds of words are added to the dictionary every year? As someone who loves words and the power they possess, this has always delighted me. Looking at the new entries of any given year can act like a time capsule of sorts. It can tell you what people were excited about, what issues societies were dealing with, and point to advancements in technology. I'm your host, Carly Sheridan, and in today's episode of Women in Economics, we're going to kick things off with a little trip down memory lane before diving into the economics of media. Alternative, facts, fake, and news. Now, of course, none of these words were new in 2017, but the combination of how we use them was. While I wouldn't dare begin a sentence with Merriam-Webster defines any word as dot, 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 Merriam-Webster did publish an article entitled Conway, Alternative Facts, after searches for the word fact spiked dramatically after Kellyanne Conway first used the term on an episode of Meet the Press. To quote Chuck Todd's response, alternative facts? Alternative facts are not facts. They're falsehoods. The political climate in many places around the world was tense in 2017. The rise of alt-right groups and populist politicians were not only making headlines, they were winning elections. The public was also being bombarded with messaging encouraging them to distrust the media. One economist took more than notice. She took action. Economist Ekaterina Zurafskaya grew up in the Soviet Union and was in high school as the Iron Curtain began to fall. She has a deep understanding, both professionally and personally, of the power of propaganda and has an extensive research on the economics of conflict. This new wave of manipulation and the effects it was having on the public inspired her to start a new project. The motivation behind this project is just a casual observation that a lot of politicians are using misleading statements or sometimes outright false facts to back up their arguments and try to persuade people, in particular, to vote for them or to believe in something which would be furthering the political agenda of these people. And uh, this is definitely true about many of the populist politicians, but the mainstream and completely pro-establishment politicians sometimes, unfortunately, also use inaccurate statements to back up their own arguments. What we were interested in is to try to understand why they keep doing this despite the fact that now the technology is such that they can be fact-checked essentially in real time. So the question is, there must be something wrong about the effects of fact-checking for the politicians to keep doing this despite the fact that they know that they will be fact-checked. Zurovskaya and her co-researchers set out to explore the different hypotheses that could explain this behavior. Was it simply that people just don't believe fact-checkers? Perhaps the public's opinion of the media really had waned. Or was it something more complex? The other possibility is that actually the facts per se and the conclusions are kind of separated in the voters' minds. They organized an online experiment a few months before the 2017 presidential election in France. Using a polling firm, they drew a sample that represented the French voter population and segmented them into four different groups. The extreme right uh, Marine Le Pen 
and try to convince voters that refugees come to France not for security reasons at all. And she gave some just outright false numbers, particularly about the percentage of immigrants in France who are not working, and also some misleading statements that the vast majority of them are men and trying to suggest that that means that this is economic immigration rather than really people fleeing conflict. That was the only information the first group was presented with. The second group was given the same quotes alongside the official numbers relating to gender and employment, which drew a very different picture. The third group only received facts from official sources, and the fourth was presented with no information at all and were simply asked who they intended to vote for. We find first that, unfortunately, political communication is highly persuasive. In particular, people in the alt-facts group were significantly more likely to claim that they will vote for Marine Le Pen in the upcoming elections. People who got official facts learn them, irrespective of whether they were subjected to alternative facts or not, which means, essentially, that people trust official sources a lot more than they trust Marine Le Pen to the extent that it concerns the actual facts. However, that new knowledge about the truth does absolutely nothing to undo the political effects of the political communication which is based on imprecise or alternative facts. While the initial findings were disappointing, they were able to deduce some conclusions as to what was happening here. One is that fact-checking actually raises salience of a very sensitive issue in the minds of voters. So in other words, any type of a communication which relates to a very sensitive political subject may turn people to vote for sort of more extreme candidates if they know that these extreme candidates, for example, in this particular case, have a stance on anti-immigration policy. The other story is that alternative facts are used in the political communication as embedded in the narrative. Politicians don't just use a number. They actually explain how this number should lead to a political conclusion. Marine Le Pen actually said 95% of immigrants in France do not work. Therefore, this means that they are stealing social security from you, essentially. So this is not a direct quote, but this is the essence of what she said. This kind of political communication with these conclusion, which is formulated explicitly, makes people very, very uncomfortable about the possibility of that happening, irrespective of the true facts are. We do know that when people are scared, when they are uncomfortable, they tend to sort of more extreme solutions and tend to reject something new, tend to try to build walls rather than bridges. The second stage of this research is an ongoing examination into whether people are less likely to share false information once it's been fact-checked. And while it took several years for social media platforms to catch up, we have seen labels and warnings placed on posts that contain misleading information and unverified or disputed claims. More time needs to pass before we can truly decipher the efficiency of these efforts. But in the meantime, Zurafskaya says messaging should be an area of focus when it comes to combating the spread of alternative facts. 
a full-fledged narrative and just a simple dry statistical fact, the persuasiveness of these two is very different, which probably should teach us about how one should engage in fact-checking alternative uh, facts before the fact-checking articles were short and they were basically uh, focusing only on the numbers which the politicians got wrong. But now, more and more, they are sort of more elaborate trying to explain what the context is and why having a different number should lead to different conclusions. Of course, this is partly job of other politicians to do this, not only the media, but I think the media also could do a better job in doing this. But what about those people who see alternative facts as a justification of their personal feelings and seem more interested in promoting those ideals regardless of their validity? There is a group of partisan voters who actually are ready to spread the out facts, even though they know very well that they are wrong and they feel that it's kind of cool to just support their political agenda. But my hypothesis is that this is a minority among voters. It seems that political landscapes in many of the democracies are changing. Some of this reshaping of the political landscape has to do with the fact that people are just uh, fed up with either elites or with politicians who people feel lie to them. With the new technologies, particularly with the social media, it has become much cheaper to reach out to the voters for politicians who may not have, let's say, the full-fledged support from the party machine, where will it lead us? Well, that is a whole another question, and uh, it remains to be seen. But new interesting findings in political economics point to the direction that the sort of new technologists help, particularly right-wing populists here in Europe, So on the one hand, uh, there are reasons to worry. On the other hand, social media give a lot of possibilities to essentially deliver correct information to voters as well. Part of the argument probably applies more to the developing countries, but still you know, in, in the countries where the traditional media is not independent or in places where traditional media is not trusted very much. Social media give a very important, powerful medium in uh, informing people. People becoming, you know, often more politically informed because they get connected. So, you know, there is no one-sided answer and we need to learn a lot more about it, but it's a super interesting area of research and it is timely because we do see that political landscape is changing in many ways. Zurovskaya has also examined the media's effect during times of conflict. In her paper, Attack When the World Is Not Watching, she and her co-author present findings that show the U.S. news cycle actually plays a role in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They found that Israeli attacks were more likely to occur on days where the U.S. news cycle was preoccupied as a way to divert public attention from these attacks. I have to admit, when I sat down to discuss these findings with her, I came equipped with the opinion that these findings were alarming at best. But she had a different view entirely. 
we show that the attacks are more severe, more frequent, and sometimes lead to more casualties at the times when the U.S. media is preoccupied by internal U.S. political events, which have to do with the political cycle or, in fact, possibly also sports events and so on and so forth. Basically, what we find is that the Israeli Defense Forces care about the way they're portrayed in the media. That would be normal for essentially any accountable politician or, you know, actor to care about what is a little bit surprising is how sophisticated they are in trying to improve their image. If anything, the findings of this paper is something positive because we see that media could play a role as a check on a party even in a long-term conflict like the one which we're studying. And that's not bad at all, because the parties then maybe choose strategically the timing of the attacks to minimize the negative coverage. But the first order effect is that they care, which means essentially that they may not engage in some of the operations which otherwise they would have. And of course, she's right. That is a net positive. The paper's second major finding was that the most damaging thing for the party was civilian casualties. It's not the information about the statistics of the conflict which matters. What matters is the personal stories. Israelis try to avoid coverage of infrequent but possible civilian casualties in the day following the attack when the journalists already are able to interview the relatives to have a very elaborate picture and a story about the victims. It seems that what we see is the confirmation of a sort of very famous phrase that picture is worth a thousand words. What Israel wants to minimize is a story when victims are named by their names. There's a, we, we learn about background, so they are portrayed as humans. And uh, that's basically a very important lesson in political communication. I had been looking through the lens that this was a controlled PR tactic that was focused on less coverage, not on less violence. So I think you're right that this particular party is trying to manage bad PR, but the fact that they're trying to manage bad PR means that they are affected by the coverage of the conflict. And I think we need to see that this way. The results of our study actually strongly suggest that the presence of media in the ongoing conflicts helps avoid at least unnecessary human suffering. The fact that they're being watched, they should and are more careful about what they're doing. I started my own career as a journalist, so I realize this may bring me more relief than it does any given listener. But these are incredibly important findings for journalism, for political sciences, for democracy, and for society at large. It's also a pertinent example of the collisions that are happening all the time within the field of economics in areas you may least expect it, like language. The words we use matter so much more than we sometimes realize, even from an economic point of view. Join us next week for a look at what the future of multilateralism may hold. 
Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin, with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented. 